Welcome to City Stories, the podcast by Energy Cities. I'm Miriam Eisenman and I'm your host. This podcast is for those who want to learn how cities go about with the energy transition, how they take action with courage and creativity. There is no doubt new ways of communicating are needed. What are the best means to shape new narratives and in the end to make people want to really engage in changing the energy system? I spoke to Laura Williams and Britt Jurgensen from Carbon Co-op. One is a trained theater practitioner, the other a political activist. Can we empower people more easily by merging art and activism? That's what I tried to find out with Laura and Britt. Laura and Britt, can you present yourselves very quickly? Sure. So I'm Laura Williams. I work for Carbon Co-op. Um, we're an energy services cooperative that's based in Manchester. And I work mainly on the communications, engagement, education and facilitation side of our work. I've worked in kind of various different fields around climate change for around 10 years. Um, yeah, so that's me. Nice having you in the show, Laura. Britt. Hi, um, my name is Britt Jorgensen. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me. Uh, I um, I work with Laura in the Carbon Corp Energy Commons team. So in the same kind of field, this is actually my first venture into working with um, energy. I come more from a background of working within community-led housing and business, so working within uh, neighbourhoods with people on the ground on um, facilitating processes where they can get involved in really taking ownership in the planning uh, uh, and the shaping of the future of their of the places they live in. Great. I'm, I'm really happy having both of you uh, here uh, in the City Stories podcast today. Thanks for being here. Uh, people engaged in the energy transition often fall into two camps, actually. There is the more techie camp on the one side. People believe that uh, the whizzy tech stuff uh, can really help us uh, save the world. And then there are the more social and people-centered uh, groups of people um, I guess you're more in the second camp. Why, why did you choose this one? So I'd say that um, in the, the kind of technical space, there's already quite a lot of answers and proven technologies that have a huge part to play in bringing down our carbon emissions and responding to climate change. But And we can imagine kind of those technologies being used in that way you know we've all seen those images of solar panels and wind turbines and all of that is kind of there and available but I think what is missing is the answer to the more social questions that is still in need of some fleshing out and reimagining when you think about climate change it's such a massive task to try and combat something that touches all parts of our lives and it also works on so many different dimensions it's happening now but the major impacts are in the future so I feel there's a lot that needs to be done around really getting to grips with what climate change is and the magnitude of the task and then some of the questions around what do you do with that technology really fall in the social camp as well so if we are to put solar panels in a particular place you know that question of Who's going to make the decision around where they're going to be located and who's going to benefit from them, both in terms of ownership, 
um, and some of the kind of potential benefits that can also come about from the kind of um, social perspective of bringing together people together to talk about and respond to the big challenges that we face today that's still to be answered and then if you put it into the context of today where you've got um, mass unemployment with COVID, you've got an economic downturn on the way. Again, there are social questions about how we use these technologies that are available to us to address climate change. And I think that's the space that I really like to work in, almost creating a, a third space between tech people and people who are interested in these more social questions, because I think it's that interaction between those two spaces that's so important um, and building trust between them so that we can answer uh, answer the question in a way that, yeah, responds to the, the broader challenges that we face. Interesting. Um, what, what space would you want to occupy, Britt? Uh, I think bringing people together is also one of your big missions. Yeah, I think I think I've over the time learned I mean apart from the fact that you know I definitely couldn't sit in the techie camp because I do not hold I do not hold those those skills nor did I ever really feel like you know uh, 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 very easily accessible to or they didn't feel very easily accessible to me <laughs> but um but um, I would say that um, <laughs> what we need very much at the moment is What, what is, I guess called social innovation. It's considering how we innovate um, the way we own, the way we govern, the way we make decisions over these really important um, future developments. And within innovation, and that I guess comes for me also from the theatre background that I come from, you know, it, th this is a process of, um, and I guess it's the same in the science, it's a process of trial and error. It's a process of um, piloting things, of doing hands-on stuff together and figuring out what works and, and what doesn't and, and really creating safe spaces where people can make mistakes. And that sometimes feels a little bit counterintuitive because we have so little time. <laughs> But I really believe that that makes it you know, learning together how to do that and really changing what I would call the culture of our imagination. So how we imagine how we are together, how we imagine, or uh, you know, the way uh, that we own and work with this infra infrastructure that um, is something that, you know, it will become a more sustainable approach. And that might sound a bit wafty, But it actually, when it's happening on the ground, it's a very hands-on process. Mm -hmm. and, and when you talk about the culture of imagination, um, that means looking into the future. But I guess that also implies that you need to know a bit of your past, to know from, from where you start and where you have to go. Um, Carbon Corp is, is a cooperative which is based in Manchester. Manchester is a city which has uh, a heavy energy industry past. How does that play into current energy policies of the city? How does that past influence the local decision makers? So I think generally sometimes um, we find it difficult to imagine something different than the now. Like, you know, this what we're, what we're experiencing now is what we think is the status quo. That's how it will always be. That's kind of a, you know, it's probably a human element of adaptation and, and survival in the moment. But um, it sometimes really helps um, in order to imagine 
another way of being together or another way of organizing. Um, it sometimes helps to travel back in the past to just have a look at how things have developed. So we did a really interesting project some time ago where we developed a public performative walk that we took particularly decision makers um, of all areas. So, you know, activists, but also policy people, but also union people um, who we took on this walk, which we developed together with an anthropologist really looking at how did the way that we owned uh, uh, and controlled the energy system um, over time. And then, of course, it became really interesting for people to see that, yeah, Manchester was incredibly um, entrepreneurial in the very early days, you know, owning all of uh, the energy infrastructure generation and distribution as uh, uh, in, in public ownership and really coming up with a great way of like, you know, um, advertising for that by like putting the very first ever light onto like the police station. So everybody gathered around it and was like, oh, what is this, you know? And and then really working with um, public investment at the time into developing um, um, those infrastructures uh, into, for example, public lighting. And also I think the other thing that many people, when we got to the moment of, of privatization, you know, some people are not were not actually old enough to remember how it was before and others had just forgotten. They were like, oh, yeah, we had this like, you know, we had this whole system of public ownership, which, you know, was also flawed and, of course, part, you know, uh, born of its own time. But I think it really em encourages um, a sort of imagination into the future then to kind of go like, you know, it. I, I always quote um, um, Rebecca Solnit in that who sort of talks about how the future is dark but by dark she means like um we don't know so yeah. anything but in the we don't know a lot is possible and it is up to us to give that um body to give that shape mm -hmm. and there's a lot of hope in that mm. Definitely. And you can see from the past that many things have been possible and some things worked very well, but have been abandoned because a new ideology, political ideology came up. And in the end, there there is no uh, real barrier to say, why shouldn't we reuse things from the past? Um, yeah. I think, and have yeah. an entire fleet of uh, elect electric taxis, for example. For so example. heartbreaking <laughs> sometimes to see that, you know, that that existed in the turn of the century. Yeah, I think it gives us a, a chance to kind of reimagine um, some of the, the challenges that cities face today through that lens of looking at what are the different options available. Say, if you think about heat networks um, and some of the, the providers that have who are owners of those um, sets of infrastructure at the moment, um, There's there's been a kind of disconnect in thinking that this is the only way that that ownership could continue into the future. But whether we can look backwards and think about the relationship of public to community owned to private and what is the, the real space in which we could interact to make decarbonisation happen. So I think it's so helpful for having that lens. And yeah, the, I think the lens is quite um, difficult or blurry for some people because the energy issue or the climate challenge as such is still super complex and and difficult to, to grasp, grasp. Things like the energy walk that you were just mentioning, Brit, are certainly helpful to make people um, 
more sensitive to the topic and make it more tangible uh, for them. I think it's an, a really, really interesting way of uh, bringing the energy topic closer to, to citizens and to decision makers, as you just uh, said. What other experiences did you make or what other formats did you experiment with in your um, work life that seemed to work well and that were something where people said afterwards, oh yeah, right, I finally I understood what you mean or finally I I I got the 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 um the idea of of um what we need to do. Yeah, so the I think our more public facing um experience that we've been we've created a couple of years ago. It's called the Great Energy Escape. And this was our way of trying to give people a, a physical experience of what the energy system actually is. Um, as you're saying, it, the energy system is this kind of set of wires that are out of sight, out of mind, that people don't think about very often. And even in just describing it, it's still not a particularly easy thing to get your head around of, you know, what, what does this really look like, feel like? Um, and so what we did was we created a, a fictional scenario, which we turned into a game around a energy company um, where the, the network has gone down and you're set into a room where you get to rebuild the energy system from the ground up and decide what your future energy system should look like. So should it have um, solar panels? Should there be wind turbines should there be uh increase in energy efficiency and there are all these different parameters that you get to imagine in that kind of crisis situation of everything stopped what would i do now and so it brings that physical lived experience into something that can feel so far off and intangible and gives people that chance to yeah make up their own mind about what it is. And I think the experience that people have from that is almost like a little light bulb moment from what we got from people of, ah, now I understand what this thing is that's always felt quite amorphous and distant. That sounds really fascinating. And I'm, I'm sure that you needed to combine loads of different disciplines and people from different backgrounds to to design this this game and the same also for the walk Brit when you say you involve an anthropologist that's quite unusual um, uh, for the energy field how how did that work uh, because it's also I guess different working cultures and attitudes that come together already in this planning stage of such a, a creative project Did that work well? And were your uh, visions of how to communicate energy topics quite similar? Yeah, so for the, the Great Energy Escape, we had three different camps almost represented. So we had an engineer um, thinking through the energy trilemma, coming at it from that perspective of how do you balance cost, carbon um, and energy and make a balance between it. That was their kind of contribution. We had me kind of bringing a bit more of the kind of political side of things 
um, some of the social issues around ownership, that side of thing. And then we had an artist who was constantly saying, we need to reduce the complexity of this and turn it into an experience that people are going to be engaged with, stop with so much detail. And I think it was that kind of interaction that created something that was quite unusual for the way that we talk about decarbonisation and the energy system. It's that kind of unusual conversation between people that won't necessarily work together very often that, yeah, can create something that's quite beautiful and quite different. Excellent. What is your experience, Britt? Does this uh, artist attitude ring a bell to you? <laughs> of course, yeah, it does. I mean, it also does because I think um, there is definitely a... Um, there's definitely a gap often in communication and it's really hard to <laughs> to link you know between like um, the expertise um, of the technology or the policy or the uh, uh, yeah around around the um, around the energy transition and then the expertise of place or the expertise of local needs and narratives and um, I think we find over and over that um, that kind of middle bit, what Laura was talking about before, where we um, facilitate the coming together of the two and maybe bridging that gap is the really important um, point. And I think so for me, for example, working with Hannah, the anthropologist, was really natural because that is a lot of the the work in a way that she does. You know, she does a lot of research within communities around infrastructures and people and infrastructures. So she is very used to bridging that gap um, over and over. And something that we really enjoyed uh, within this process was bringing people in from the energy system. Uh, so who work, for example, uh, as the business lead in the in the distribution company and finding a way for them to tell their story in a way that other people can hear it. And that is often by making it more personal, uh, by, you know, um, yeah, uh, finding a, a way into simplifying something. And we had a really great moment with the walk where we, um, where we were trying to <laughs> explain how privatization, sort of how the, the shares were sold on and how all these companies you know, became more and more. And in the end, we made this crazy big map that we just read out. We were like, then, and then it's all to this, and then it's all to this, and then it's all to this, and then it's all to this. And then we counterpointed that with um, our colleague from the distribution company talking, telling his very personal story about being offered those shares as a worker because he was as a young worker in the system. And he was like, you know, and he just told his story from from his family. He was like, you know, My mother comes from a landowning family and uh, and my dad is a worker from a working class. And I was sitting at home and my mum was saying, oh, what a great opportunity. You should buy those um, <laughs> shares. And, and, and his dad was like, no, that's the family silver. You really should not. You know, that's not yours to have. And, and just telling that story from such a personal perspective was a really good sort of counterpoint to that really quite distant map of ownership and and different yeah international companies nice. <laughs> i'm not sure if i answered your question but i just went yeah yeah you did i i hear from what both of you say i i hear that there's a lot of complementarity and having people from different backgrounds just helps us 
well understand each other better and and tell the story in a way that it's I think understandable to more people as well because if if you stick to one discipline you usually have uh, one single focus or a way of looking at things and yeah working with both technical people creative people uh, people from more of the social background um, just helps covering the different needs as well and the different ways of uh, understanding things so I know that that's super interesting And both of you are leading projects on local energy planning at the neighborhood level as well. Why do you think this is the right scale for action on energy democracy or energy ownership? What what experience do you have? What projects do you have already in, in at neighborhood level? And how does that work? How do you mobilize communities? So I think we've become quite interested in thinking about how can people shape and influence planning policy um, as that's where a lot of the decisions around uh, changes to our energy system so new renewable energy um, energy efficiency work on our buildings that's the kind of space within it works in but when that, when and how that relates to people within a community's actual life is the bit that seems missing i can imagine um, pictures that I've seen of renewables in the hills. But how does that fit in someone's neighborhood and community? And how can that relate to people's day-to-day -day experience? Like we've been saying that climate change can often feel like something that's very far off and isn't having any tangible effects right now. So we need something that can root it to people's day-to-day -day experience. And I think by having conversations around something that has a physicality already and linking that to some of these changes that people are often already aware of and want to have and kind of creating that connection can be really powerful in giving people ownership over that topic and taking a role within it as well because those changes are going to be within our homes and our communities um, and done by done and used by those people as well so it's that connection of place and people and technology that i feel can really be explored well and in a understandable way at that neighborhood level i guess you need to be be patient to make sure that people get really involved and are accepting a, a new project like the ones that you lead Oh, Britt, you're involved in, in several community-led initiatives. What What is your experience on that? Yeah, so we, we're, we're, we're building, so, so the, the work that Laura was just talking about is going to take place in, a, uh, in two neighborhoods in this city of Oldham, which is in, in Greater Manchester. So we, we just got uh, um, funding to, to develop a, what, what we would call community think tanks who work um, alongside Uh, energy experts and uh, uh, and local and planners, urban planners, to develop those plans, but also to develop hopefully some pilots that come out of that. So we have some money also in there for them um, to then um, accompany the development of those pilots locally. And um, that is based very much on a methodology that we developed within um, neighborhood work. 
um, around uh, neighborhood plans and neighborhood uh, community-led housing development, for example. So I guess community-led regeneration, really. And we often, I have in the past often worked with what I would call like a core design group. It's a group of local representatives that um, uh, really commit to a longer process that combines learning and planning so and you know in order to make decisions i need to understand what i make a decision on so this process um both gives the skills and then back out i can then go and and really take a a, a good decision on that and i think within that is the what's really important is to acknowledge local expertise i keep on going on about that but it often happens that when 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 there is a meeting of expertise technical expertise and local expertise that there's a hierarchy um, towards the technical expertise, um, which I find problematic because it also, you know, it stops people from feeling empowered to to make a decision. And we often start with really simple things, you know, like what's the favorite? This would be about architecture, of course. You know, what's the favorite place in your house and why? And then people start to go like, oh, of course, you know, they start talking about light. They talk, start talking about uh, all kinds of um, design features that of course they have an embodied understanding of from from their lives and the other thing that we're thinking about now with Oldham which is a very diverse city is the looking at how can we and that's coming from this kind of process of deliberative polling it's the idea of making those groups um you know as representative as possible of the local demographic that would be both in in gender, but also in ethnicity, and of course, also then in socioeconomic background, which is a yeah. That's a question I had. Who is part of those uh, co-design groups? How do you identify those people and make it's sure it's a long they... process of recruitment? It takes a lot of legwork, basically, like connecting with local uh, organizations, networking. We're hiring somebody locally because it's really important to have a local facilitator with the skills, but also the trust. From the from the local community to work on that, and you know we don't know yet. It's it's of course you know it's based on a lot of experience over the years, and it also is is completely new. It will have like a dashboard that we're data dashboard that we are developing at the moment to um, inform the process, um, and so we're still scratching our heads in the in the really early stages, going like how how are we going to do this? But I think it's really exciting work. Mm, it sounds really exciting, yeah. And both of you have quite a long-standing experience already in community-level work. If you look back at, let's say, the past 10, 15 years, uh, how would you contrast what what community-level work looked like by then and how it looks now? What, what changed and um, how did it evolve? So, I mean, 10 years ago is around the time that the Climate Change Act was passed in the UK, so the first legally binding um, kind of yeah policy for the world, I think. And that came about from communities of activists coming together and forcing the agenda to make sure that we have some serious targets around decarbonisation in place. And since then, a lot has changed. I think there is still um, some work being done on how do we how do we talk about 
these targets and that is an ongoing conversation if you think about um, the uh, the climate strikes the youth movements all of that is still trying to put push this agenda as being a really important one and one that we haven't quite got our head around how we're going mm -hmm. to respond to yet I also think you've had a, another movement which is the kind of community owned renewables side of things so um, not trying to influence policy but creating the kind of vision world that they want to see so one where renewables are owned by people um, yeah and so I think we're we're kind of moving towards a a space where people are taking control of the issues themselves either on the policy level or on the actual changes to the infrastructure that needs to happen and that's been a bumpy ride uh, with different elements of policy supporting it and then taking it away and I feel like we haven't quite got the dynamics that allow for that real honest expression from people in wanting to do something about climate change um, and how we use the kind of lead the public levers to be able to allow that that frustration and kind of ideas for different ways of doing things to really come through so yeah it's changed a lot over the last 10 years for sure but I would also say that like about probably about 10 12 years ago was when the localism act was passed and um, there is quite a lot of of course also cynicism around that because you know at the time it was kind of that kind of you know here we go here we go with lots of austerity and like um, depriving local communities of their services and, and, and local authorities of their resources. Um, hey, but why don't you just take ownership yourself and do it yourself for free? <laughs> so I think what happened at the time is that at equally many people actually did kind of get pushed into taking matters into their own hand. And, um, and over the time, um, this kind of work has been I would say it has been mainstreamed, which is really, really good. It's a bit of a renaissance. It's not like this is the first time this happened. You know, mm -hmm. like Liverpool, for example, has a really strong cooperative history from the 70s. Um, Manchester obviously has a really strong <laughs> cooperative history from the beginning of the, the cooperative movement. Um, but I think what, what has happened right now is that there is a certain amount of um, trust and a track record has been built in that being a, a possible uh, way of finding local solutions. It's very fragile. And I think, you know, depending on how policy develops and how, for example, the UK national government stays or changes, this is all um, always in flux. But I think the most important thing is that the capacity and skill and understanding in those movements is growing so people um, are more equipped to um, do this kind of work and networks are building and we're learning from the different sectors with each other, which is really great. We've been working and that's where actually I'm, I met you, Laura and Britt, um, together in the Empower Learning Programme where different uh, cities met at, at a regular uh, frequency to learn together about how to take local leadership in, in democratic energy processes. What did you learn from that program and is there a message that you would want to send out to, to city administrations in Europe, either those that you've met or those who could get inspired from the local authorities who were involved in the Empower Learning Program, which were involved? 
Yeah, so I, I would say what, what really sticks with me is the um, like all of the cities I I work with, all of the participants who I work with, um, work so tirelessly at trying to make this work and with so much initiative and um, <clears throat> I would also say love <laughs> in, within, you know, love for their work and love for the process. And if anything, you know, I thought we were going maybe into this process because also mine was very much about energy uh, communities. <clears throat> Sorry, energy communities. I I was thinking we would go into a, a discussion where we had to convince or anything like that. And really what it was about was like, of course, and how, you know. So it was very much about figuring out how can we enable um, citizens what is our role in that um, how can we do this better how can we do this with the very little re um, resources that that we are uh, coming um, coming to the table um, with and so I think it was probably like for us it was always good to come and see the little highlights where people have managed to come up with some really nifty um, solutions you know that that they could learn from so you know, hearing from like uh, cities like Plymouth, who set up their like a really close uh, uh, energy community close to their um, close to the city council, who work hand in hand uh, at the local energy transition. Same for the city of Macon in Belgium, which was really impressive to see. We went to Ghent, which was wonderful just to see the you know the neighbourhood enablement that comes like enable initiative enablement that comes from from the from the city council with people working um, just at uh, 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 gathering people's ideas and enabling them to 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 initiate them or inviting we were very very fascinated by the food council in Ghent uh, which is an advisory board to the um, to the council which exists a lot but this one was really empowered to make decisions facilitated by an external facilitator with the budget attached and really coming up with fantastic solutions uh, at a local level. Yeah um, so for my group we were focused on the question of retrofit and energy efficiency improvement within the domestic sector and I think similar to what Britt was saying, um, the thing that came through in our group was very much an interest in, OK, so we, we need to do this um, and make changes around homes. But how do we do this in a way that will maximise social benefit and value for our citizens within our communities? And I think there were a couple of examples that really stood out for us throughout the, the different kinds of exercises that we did. The first was an example from Portsmouth. Um, where the municipality had looked at their building stock. So which is the, the homes that we already own and we can have a direct influence over. Um, so Wilmcott House is a, a council housing um, space. And they looked at this area because there had been uh, some questions about the quality of the house at that time. It's a big kind of old flat block. And instead of... Um, going along the lines of uh, deciding to take down that building. They thought about the impact that that would have on the community um, and people being displaced, you know, kids ending up in moving to different schools and decided actually what we'd rather do is look at the retrofit side of things. And they had a really interesting process about 
engaging with the community um, to get them to think about what changes they would like to see and how this energy efficiency work could really improve their homes. They had a mock flat built which they took people into to look around um, and had really interesting conversations about, okay, so this might mean we have a different heating system here and people would respond with, oh, but what does that mean in terms of how I do my drying of my clothes or something? And there was this real kind of conversation about the changes that need to happen, but also the human elements or how people live in those spaces. And I found that super interesting about how can you yeah do retrofit in a way that is really really empowering and then the other um example that we we talked about a lot was from plymouth council where the council has been quite involved in setting up an energy cooperative um which has become the space in which the council builds trust with local people to talk about energy issues and through that they've done some programs where they've done um audits of community homes and to yeah look at different kinds of energy efficiency work that they could do and now they're building on that reputation to think about larger scale energy efficiency work could be done um yeah i mean there's tons of examples of things that we that we talked about but those are the two that really stood out and came through as a regular conversation Excellent. Thank you very much for sharing those. Yeah, Britt, if you want to add something. Yeah, so I just wanted to say that I think what was really good to see is that there is a real mutual need um, at the moment in terms of, you know, like the possibilities, for example, that come with citizen investment was something that really um, sticks with, with, um, with local authorities and is something that is really motivating um, to move forward because I think often um i i had the sense that for cities it can like it can feel a bit of a lonely place to be responsible for all of these changes um uh, and and it can be a really supportive um gesture as well as of course a real uh, you know a real resource building to have um, people invest uh, into these um into these initiatives Thank you very much for, for sharing your insights, uh, both into this uh, learning program and in your everyday work. I'm really impressed by the work you do and by the very innovative way with which you, you tackle this very complex uh, energy topic. Um, you said it's a bumpy road and um, I agree and I think our cities would <laughs> largely agree with that. But As you were saying, we, we can make this journey much more comfortable if we open up this culture of imagination and make sure that people can also make mistakes because uh, it's all new to everybody and we have to accept that there can be, yeah, it's, it's a trial and error process, but it's only uh, that way that we can make sure that we find the right solutions. So um, thanks really very much for this very inspiring talk with the two of you. And thanks. Have a good day. And thanks for having us. Today's episode was brought to you by the EU project Empower. Empower explores how cities and citizens can manage the energy transition together in a fair, clean and democratic way.
Participation can happen at various stages, from involving citizens, local NGOs or businesses in the policy design, to any stage of the energy value chain, for example, as shareholders or even prosumers. The Empower project gets funding from the European Horizon 2020 program. Go to the website municipalpower.org to learn more about Empower. And don't forget to regularly check out Energy Cities' website energy-cities.eu. We provide you with political updates and great stories around the energy transition in Europe. energy-cities.eu